Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you are about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under Podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning we come in our consideration of the Gospel of Matthew to Matthew chapter 27, verses 27 through 54. The climax of the drama that Matthew has been leading up to all along, the crucifixion of Jesus. <clears throat> These are the words of God. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had trysted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They, then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and, the, and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the whole land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered to hit it to him to drink. The rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Our God and Father, we know that unless you open your word to us, it is just words. The Spirit must bring it to us and enliven our understanding and open our hearts that it would be applied to us. We come here today to the center of the gospel 
And so we pray, preach it to us, O Lord God, that we might be your people. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. In this passage, everyone has an opinion about who Jesus is and what his death means. And that really is the question, not only for those living in the first century, but for everyone living in every century. Who is Jesus and what is the meaning of his death? Is Jesus the Son of God? Is he the King of Israel? Is he the one called Christ? Now, all these titles are different ways of saying the same thing. Christ in the Greek or Messiah in the Hebrew means anointed one. In other words, God's chosen one. And when you said Christ to a first century Jew, they immediately thought of King David. King David preeminently was God's chosen one who delivered Israel from her enemies. He was the shepherd king, the psalmist of Israel, the man after God's own heart, who led Israel in the ways of the Lord and kept Israel under the blessing of God. For all these reasons, God referred to David as his son, the one who reflected his heart and did his will. And that's what all the kings of Israel were supposed to be, the son of God. But of course, not even David fully lived up to that name. He committed murder and adultery. He was not able to deliver himself from sin, nor Israel from sin. He was not able to keep Israel under God's blessing. But God promised a son of David who would be even greater than David. One who would truly deliver Israel and bring her under God's blessing forever. And the prophecies also said that this new king of Israel who would deliver Israel would also be the king of the world, who would deliver the whole world. So when the question arises as to whether Jesus is the Christ or the king of Israel or the son of God, that's what it's referring to. Is Jesus this promised son of David who will permanently deliver Israel and the world? and bring them under God's blessing forever. And as to that question, everyone in this text has an opinion and registers that opinion. And their opinion is driven by their view of the meaning of Jesus' death. First, there are the Roman soldiers, verses 27 through 31 and verses 35 through 37. Then there are the Jewish people walking by in verses 39 and 40. Then there are the chief priests, the scribes and elders, the rulers of Israel in verses 41 through 43. And finally, the two insurrectionists, robbers, really not a good translation. They were uh, Jewish freedom fighters. The Romans would have uh, regarded them as insurrectionists, terrorists. They were probably compatriots of Judas, of Jesus Barabbas. And they're crucified on either side of Jesus. And we see them in verse 44. And all of these people mock Jesus. The idea that he is the chosen one, the son of God, the king of Israel, is ridiculous. And what makes it ridiculous is simply the fact that Jesus is hanging on a Roman spit and can't do anything about it. To them, Jesus would have to come down from the cross to be the Christ, the king of Israel, the son of God. But Matthew wants us to see that there is great irony here, for the truth is exactly the opposite. It's not that Jesus can't come down from the cross, it's that he won't. And that is the proof 
that he really is the Christ, the King of Israel, the Son of God. What is occurring on the cross is not what all these people think. It's not the world ridding itself of a deluded wannabe king and troublemaker. What is occurring at the cross is that, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Jesus has willingly gone to the cross. The cross is why he came. When the time came, Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. He had been staying away, avoiding confrontation. He knew the leaders wanted to kill him. Now, all of a sudden, he sets his face to Jerusalem. The disciples think he's crazy. He sets his face to Jerusalem, and when he gets to Jerusalem, he does everything in his power to pick a fight. He knows he's being betrayed. He does nothing to stop it. He does nothing to resist arrest. At his trial before the Sanhedrin, he says nothing. Not only does he say nothing, when the high priest finally puts him under oath, the one thing that Jesus says delivers unto the rulers the one thing they need to put him on a cross. Their witnesses are lying. They're not agreeing with one another. Jesus says, I have what you need. It is as you say, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. The high priest says, what need have we of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death. When he is on trial before Pilate, he says nothing. When Pilate says, do you hear all these things that they're saying? Have you nothing to say? Are you the Christ? Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you have said it. That's all he says. David was the Christ. He was the king of the Jews. He was the son of God. But he didn't save anybody from their sins. He didn't deliver anybody from the power of death. He didn't change anybody's sinful nature. We need a different kind of king. We need a different kind of son of God. And that's who Jesus is. He's the king who actually changes the world. And that is why he is on the cross and will not come down. As Jesus said in John chapter 10, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I received from my Father. Jesus is drinking the cup of God's judgment to the full because it is necessary for the salvation of the world. And so we see that throughout this crucifixion process, throughout the scourging, throughout the crucifixion itself, Jesus is in full possession of his senses. He's not fading away. He refuses wine mixed with gall in verse 34. But later, it seems that he drinks sour wine in verse 41. What is going on? Well, gall, the Greek word there, just means a bitter herb. But there's evidence that this particular herb that was used had narcotic qualities. It was a numbing agent to dull the senses and to ease the pain. When Jesus tasted it, he refuses to drink. He will not turn away from the full cup he must drink. He will drink it with all his taste buds engaged. Jesus' life is not taken from him. He gives it. And he gives it to God. And he gives it for the salvation of the world. 
And so we see that with all these things going on around Jesus, people mocking, soldiers casting lots for his clothes, women watching from the distance, no doubt weeping, Jesus' attention is focused in one direction and one direction only, and that is to his Father. At the very center of what's happening here on the cross, it's between Jesus and the Father. It's between God the Son and God the Father. That is where the salvation of the world is being accomplished. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 5 that Jesus... He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So we see Jesus on the cross here offering up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to God, the Father who is able to deliver him from death. Matthew makes the same point to us by continually alluding in our text to Psalm 22, which we read in our responsive reading this morning. Five different times Matthew shows us how that psalm is being fulfilled in Jesus' crucifixion. In verse 35, the soldiers casting lot for Jesus' clothing is a fulfillment of Psalm 22:18. In verse 39, the people ridiculing Jesus, wagging their heads, is a fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 7. In verse 43, the chief priest saying, He trusts in God, let God rescue him if he delights in him, is a quote from Psalm 22, verse 8. Verse 50, Jesus crying out with a loud voice is a fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 2. And verse 46, Jesus' words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is a quote from the opening words of the psalm, verse in Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That brings up a common misunderstanding about the cross of Christ. It's often said that God the Father abandoned his Son on the cross, that he could not look upon him, that he turned his back on him, and that is what Jesus is referring to by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We need to remember that Psalm 22 is not a typical prophecy. It's a prayer. It is the prayer of Jesus to the Father on the cross. It is a prayer which by the Spirit was first placed in the mouth of David as a pointer and foreshadow of what was to come. And we need to remember that it is a prayer that was answered in the middle of the psalm, in verse 21, what does it say? You have answered me. A few verses later, it says that God has not hidden his face from him. But when he cried to God, God heard. What is the Father's answer to Jesus' prayer? Well, it's the resurrection. That's the answer. God's fulfillment of his prophecy. Jesus did not go to the cross blind. He went to the cross knowing the Father's promise. Psalm 16. Peter preaches it in the book of Acts. You will not abandon my soul to Hades. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. Jesus trusted the Father. He calls upon Him to answer. He cries out to Him. The Father 
answers. So the first part of Psalm 22 are the prayers of Jesus on the cross. The middle, verse 21, is where God answers him in the resurrection. And the last part is where Jesus gives thanks to the Father. I will declare your name to my brethren and praise you in the assembly. And then Jesus declares the results of the Father's answer. All the ends of the earth will turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. So if the Father abandoned Jesus and turned his back on his Son on the cross, who is Jesus praying to? Who hears his prayer? How is his prayer answered? So while we can say that the Father delivered up Jesus to the judgment for sin, at the same time, we must realize that the Father was never closer to and never more attentive to His Son than when He hung on the cross. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to him. Now in the Trinity, it was not the Father who hung on the cross. It was not the Father or the Spirit who were incarnated. It was the Son. But whatever one member of the Trinity does, the other members are involved and are right there. They are acting, you might say, together. So God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. How does that work? What exactly happens? Well, the phrase that theologians have come up with to describe what occurred between the Father and the Son is penal substitutionary atonement. Now, those are fancy theological words, but it's just a fancy way of saying that Jesus, as our substitute, took the punishment our sin deserved and in that way atoned for our sin. It is what we find expressed in the well-known words of Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. That's what it means. That's what happened. Now, in modern times, the idea of God giving his son as a penal substitute has come under a great deal of scorn and derision. Today, it is often mocked as cosmic child abuse. Why would God punish an innocent victim, especially his own son, as a condition for forgiving someone? Any God who would do that is deranged and cruel. That's like a man kicking his dog after a bad day at work. God the Father is full of rage, and he has to take it out on somebody. So Jesus says, take it out on me, that the others may be spared. That is not what happened at the cross. God the Father is not losing his temper at the cross. Mankind is under the righteous sentence of death. And God is rightly angry at man's sin. He would be wrong to not be angry. For him to not be angry at man's sin, he would no longer be good. But it is not a fit of anger. It is a righteous anger. To help us understand this, let's, let's flip this around. And let's ask ourselves this question. 
what are the things which make us righteously angry and make us feel that it would be wrong not to be angry? I've thought about this question a lot because of having worked in the criminal justice field. And what I've seen is that while most wrongs, people will say that they're wrong, they don't make people angry. But there's one category of wrong that make people angry and make people feel it's wrong not to be angry. And those are wrongs that involve personal relationships and personal betrayal. A spouse cheating on the honeymoon. Think Prince Charles and Princess Di. An FBI agent secretly selling out his country for over a decade while pretending to be a loyal servant and a good family man. A single mother who gets a new bow. So she puts her four little children in their car seats, puts the car in neutral and watches it roll into the lake and then reports them as missing. Think Susan Smith. It's wrong not to be angry about those betrayals. But the only reason we recognize those things as betrayals, fundamentally wicked, deserving of anger and wrath, is because they are reflections of what man did to God in the Garden of Eden. Man did not violate the equivalent of some cosmic traffic code. Man betrayed God. Man betrayed the God who loved him, who created him, and who had given him everything. It would be wrong to not be angry. But righteous anger does not exclude love. In fact, righteous anger presupposes love. To love good and right is to hate and be angry at their opposite. So, you parents, let me ask you. Is it possible to be righteously angry at a child and love them at the same time? Yes. Why do you get righteously angry sometimes? Because you love them. So the fact that God's righteous anger is part of the just sentence of death that fell upon Jesus in our stead does not mean that God lost his temper or had a fit at the cross. But we need to understand that God's righteous anger at man's betrayal in the garden and all of the different individual sins which have flowed from it is expressed precisely in the just sentence which Christ bore on our behalf. God's wrath is not some mindless rage added on top. It says in Psalm 7 verse 11, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. That's Hebrew parallelism. Let's turn it around. Why is God angry at the wicked every day? Because he is a just judge. One of the biggest eye-opening aha moments that you can have when it comes to God's wrath is to reflect on the fact that the wrath expressed by God in the Old Testament toward Israel in the wilderness, for example, was expressed by Christ. 
Hebrews 12 tells us that it was the pre-incarnate Jesus who spoke from the top of Mount Sinai. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that it was the pre-incarnate Christ who accompanied Israel in the wilderness. So all the thunderings from the top of Mount Sinai, the threats, the anger expressed in the desert, that's not coming from the Father. That's coming from the Son, who would later come and become one of us to go to the cross to save us from that. So we cannot divide the Father and the Son when it comes to God's wrath. And remember that the Gospels tell us that on the last day, when everyone is judged, it is not the Father who will judge. It is Jesus. What does Paul preach in Acts 17? God has appointed a man who will judge the world on the last day. What does Jesus say in John chapter 5? The Father judges no one but has committed all judgment into the hands of the Son. We cannot divide the Father and the Son when it comes to God's wrath. Also, we cannot divide the Father and the Son when it comes to God's love. For the Bible makes it clear that the love that expressed in the gospel originated with the Father. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. John 15, 9, as the Father loved me, Jesus says, I also have loved you. Do you want to understand my love? It's not like we have an angry father and then a loving son who comes and interposes himself. No. We have an angry father and son against betrayal and sin. And we have a loving father and loving son who come and devise to save the world. Jesus says, if you want to understand my love for you, then you have to understand my Father's love for me. Why would a father give his son? How does that expression of love? One of the criticisms that that, uh, comes about is this, is that it's somehow a measure of cruelty that God would give his son to go to the cross. Let me ask you this, fathers, mothers, if you had a choice, you die or your child dies, you die or your child dies, which will it be? Which is more precious to you, your life or your child's life? You know the answer to that. You would give your life. Your child's life is more precious to you. And God giving his son, he gave the only life more precious to him than his own. It was the only cost that was greater. It is a greater sacrifice for the father, not lesser. So as it says in the great benediction in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father be with you all. We cannot divide the Father and the Son when it comes to wrath against sin or love for sinners. Now, another criticism of penal substitutionary atonement is saying that it's ridiculous to think that punishing an innocent person can absolve a guilty person. Think about it. How does punishing somebody who is innocent really do anything at all about somebody who is guilty? 
Well, generally that is true. But we have to remember that Jesus, like Adam, was not a normal person. He is the covenant head of a people. He is the covenant head of a new human race, born of the Spirit of God. Normally, one person taking punishment for another does nothing to change the guilty person. It leaves them just as guilty as they were before. It leaves them just as wicked as they were before. The only thing accomplished is adding a new evil of having punished the innocent. But with a covenant head, such as Adam and Jesus, what they do does change those who are united to them. When Adam sinned, he changed us. He changed all of us. He made us guilty, just as though we had sinned. And he changed who we are. He changed our nature. He didn't make us something that's not human. But he changed our nature. He made us sinners. We sin because we're sinners, not the other way around. And so likewise, when Jesus died and rose again, it changed us. It, in fact, made us innocent. And not only innocent, but righteous. And all of that is what is going on between the Father and the Son on the cross. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them. Well, we began this consideration by looking at all the opinions of the different groups regarding who Jesus is and what his death means. The one person we have not heard from is God the Father himself. And that is how our text ends in verses 51 through 53. And it ends by relating some very strange events. The veil of the temple being torn in two from top to bottom, the earth quaking and rocks being split, graves being opened, bodies of saints who had fallen asleep rising up and after Jesus is raised, coming into the city. What is going on here? Well, quite simply, God the Father is stating his opinion. Israel and the Gentiles have already given their opinion to who Jesus is and what his death means. Now God the Father is giving his. And he does so using events instead of words. And here God shows us one of the most fundamental differences between God's opinion and ours. Man's opinion is just an opinion. He has no ability to make his opinion reality. But God's opinion is not just an opinion. It has world-changing effect. So it is appropriate that God gives his opinion in the form of action. And specifically, God the Father takes three actions each of which is a fulfillment of something that has appeared earlier in Matthew, and each of which shows us something unique about the identity of Jesus and the meaning of his death. He sends an earthquake. He tear, tears the veil of the temple in two from top to bottom, and he raises some of the saints from the dead. Now these things taken together take us all the way back to the opening words of Matthew where Matthew gives a title to the New Testament. And he calls it the book of the generations of Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember way, way back, 101 sermons ago, those innocuous sounding words to us were actually a bombshell to first century Jews because those words are an exact quote from Genesis in the Septuagint. There are a lot of genealogies in Genesis, but there's only two book of generations. 
one from Adam, one for Adam, and one for the heavens and the earth. A book of generations only applies to primogenitors, which is why it only applied, humanly speaking, to Adam. It doesn't refer to forefathers who came before, it refers to descendants. So when Matthew opens the New Testament by calling it the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, he is signaling that Jesus is a new Adam, a new head of a new human race, who is inaugurating a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. And don't forget Adam's title, Son of God. When Luke gives Jesus' genealogy going back through his father, so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, and father of whose father was, and it goes all the way back to Adam, the son of God. Adam, I mean, Matthew is saying that Jesus Christ is making everything new. He is saying that because of Jesus Christ and his death, nothing will ever be the same. The deliverance Jesus is bringing affects everyone and everything. It's cosmic in its scope. It is earth-shaking in its power. And that is exactly what God is signaling through this earthquake and the splitting of the rocks. Jesus isn't introducing a new mystery cult, a new way of feeling better about yourself. He is splitting the earth. He's shaking the ground. That's what Hebrews 12 tells us. It says it was Jesus who once shook the ground on top of Mount Sinai, but now Jesus is in heaven and he is shaking the whole world so that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. Why? Well, so that the only thing that can't be shaken will remain. And what is that? That is the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom of God? It's all of life and all of creation under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Exactly how, then, has the death of Jesus Christ turned everything upside down and made everything new? In two ways. First, God has torn the veil of the temple in two from top to bottom. This is what Christ has done through his death. In other words, Jesus has opened the way for sinners into the very presence of God. He has opened the way for sinners to be reconciled to God. He has opened the way for us to be adopted back into God's family. He has opened the way for us to come home, to have union with God and with his people, to be restored, to be who we were created to be. Second, Jesus has torn the veil of the grave. He has opened the way out, not through temporary resuscitation, but by bursting out the other side of the grave into a new life that is free from death, free from sin, new glorified life that had never been seen before. That is what God is signifying through the earthquake and the tearing of the temple veil and the resurrection of some of the saints. He is saying, look here, let me show you, this is what the death of my son means. And we see that in the end, the Roman soldiers who only a short while before were having fun beating and mocking Jesus, casting Lot for his clothes, now they get it. Now they have a different view. They get God the Father's message of who Jesus is and what his death means. Truly, they say, truly, this was the Son of God. There's a lot these Gentile soldiers did not understand. But they understood this because they watched this crucifixion and they watched what happened. 
And they got the most important thing of all that the Jewish leaders and the people with all of their knowledge did not get. Truly, this was the Son of God. And so we have heard all the opinions. What do you say? At the cross, was the world ridding itself of a deluded wannabe king? Or was God in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them? Was Jesus on the cross because he was put there and couldn't come down? Or was Jesus on the cross because he gave himself and wouldn't come down? What kind of king do we need? What kind of king do you need? Do you need a king like David? A new great and inspirational man and political leader? Will that be enough? Or do we need one who actually takes away our sins? and delivers us from death, and actually changes us, and the whole creation with us. Who do you say Jesus is, and what do you say his death means? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.